Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. And we're recording now. So, Stephen, just um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. For those who don't know, you are the uh, sort of the mysterious guy between the, <laughs> the, the, the very, very well uh, put together LA Chefs column. I think this is tremendous resource, wonderful material. I've read a number of the articles for there, and I think it's a great thing. But uh, can you give us a little quick, you know, five minute summary of, of, of who you are, what your background is, and then we can get well, into a number of good topics that you want to bring up? Uh, my background primarily is in food. So I, I've, I'm a I'm trained as an architect, but I worked with food service companies, um, one of the larger, most of the larger institutional companies. I worked for 11 years with a company called OTG Management as their outsourced design director uh, slash oversaw their construction. So in the first 11 years of that business, I went, we went from one operation to one airport to uh, six or seven airports and over 300 food service locations. And then I got tired of working 400 hour months. So I kind of closed my business and moved to the West Coast back in 2007 and uh, was working in a firm in Orange County. And then the economy imploded and uh, started working for some other firm. Then after that, worked for some firms in LA and became a principal of one of them where I attracted another large institutional food company, Delaware North Companies, who are in airports, stadiums, uh, national parks, et cetera. So again, I was working operations, food service design. And after four years, that partnership didn't really work out. So I left and I was too small to work with the big companies. So uh, I started writing this column as a way to network with small independents who I never really worked with before. And I started that's where the LA chefs came in. I started interviewing and doing profiles of them. And then I became interested in where, you know, their plates, their stories and where they were sourcing ingredients. And that in turn led me to visit uh, farms and ranches, which really, and seeing how food is really produced and grown in the varieties of ways that range from very bad to very good that it's grown, whether it's beef, broccoli, almonds, or whatever. Um, so, so that in turn has led me more into the soil science. And when I was originally 15, 16, I wanted to be applied chemist. So um, I was at 16, I had had like 85 college credit hours and was halfway to my engi chemical engineering degree, but I decided to go a different pathway. And so now I've sort of circled back to that science and I'm I used to read papers in the stacks over at Northwestern. So now you can just grab them off the computer screen real quickly. <laughs> so, um, so I'm not intimidated at all by the science, especially nutritional and uh, 
and soil science and atmospheric chemistry. So I, being an architect, you tend to think in systems because you got to put everything together. And so you don't have conflicts. So you got to think this, I sort of think the same way with soil and atmospheric science and plant science and, and range science. So I know a lot of smart people and I basically am a reporter and researcher and talk to them and I see connections that they don't necessarily see in all their separate silos. That's interesting stuff. And, you know, and, and I kind of looked through your stuff and I saw there was about a, I, there was a period where I saw it was all chefs, all chefs, and then all of a sudden you switch gears and now it's about, you know, different sort of aspects of, of food production, you know, the, the environment, so on and so forth, which is a hot topic. But uh, let me ask you, what made you sort of switch? I mean, it seems like you have a very, uh, I don't know if it's a, a passion or a particular interest in this stuff now to where it's become more, and I think you've even changed, maybe you're thinking about changing the name of the called a regenerative or something like that. What is what has driven that sort of particular? Well, well, I've thought about rebranding, but I still am sort of working in the industry, so I kind of have never, uh, never made the full transition. But regenitarianism is basically look. It's 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 um, it's supporting regenerative agriculture principles, which can be holistic plant grazing or permaculture or agroforestry. There are many manifestations of it. And what I've always been interested in nutrition, and I've also always been interested in food production and where food comes from. So the, the big transition for me was I started writing LA chef profiles and I started writing LA chef supplier profiles. And if you know the higher end top end chefs, they're very particular about where they source their ingredients from. Um, and, you know, I've gotten to know people like Dan Barber and Curtis Stone, who I, who I uh, correspond with. And, you know, we don't agree on everything from a dietary platform, but we, we do agree on a lot of, you know, the importance of, of how food is raised and how it's produced because Right now, I find the whole argument, you know, meats versus plants to be sort of besides the point because it's the real, the real dichotomy is industrial or degenerative production versus what's regenerative production. And, the, and when you say regenerative production, you want to restore soils and soils have been so degraded. And when you look at cattle or um, other ruminants within the context of both pasture rangeland systems and integrated systems, the cattle are integral to rebuilding soil. And rebuilding soil means, you know, sequestering carbon, which improves the carbon cycle and also impacts the water cycle. And so there's that whole hydraulic component, which is huge in California, which most people don't really understand. Yeah, well, we're having a lot of fires in California, and there's a, there's many people that point out that you know if we had soil that would hold on to water a little better, you know, then then we would have more fire resistant, uh, you know, well, uh, the landscape. Well, drought and and flood resilience and fire resilience are really a function of the cap capability of water soil to hold water more so than how much water falls from the sky. So when you, the, the figure that's bantered about, which is probably on the high head, for every 1% increase in organic matter, you, you can 
increase the holding capacity of soil in the top six inches, 26,000 gallons or 27,000 gallons. And right now with, with the use of uh, inputs for, for fertility like nitrogen and tillage, tillage is terrible and it's in organ a lot of organic practices, that destroys the organic matter the carbon oxidizes and gets released into the atmosphere. So it doesn't have that capacity. And if you drive up five, you see bare ground, you see tilled ground. We've, in many ways, the soil management in California is pretty awful. And we've created conditions that intensify drought. And in turn, when we do get a flush of rain, you get a spurt of growth. Nobody manages that fuel. And, you know, the Santa Ana's kick up or whatever due to a whole slew of uh, land management issues. And we get a lot more fires where, you know, down in Laguna Beach, they're using goats to, to graze the hilllands and that reduces the fuel load. So there's a situation where, where you, integrate, um, you integrate grazing ruminants and, and they in turn lessen the the fires and they also lessen the emissions from fires so you 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 have a trade-off in a system between the emission you know the enteric emissions which is kind of nonsense and the emissions that come from from you know combustion which are co2 and carbon monoxide and a little bit of uh, methane you know that you brought up an interesting point with like the the water holding capacity of the land and stuff like that and one thing that went across my mind and this might be yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any any info on this, but you know, when we talk about just climate change in general, we talk about melting ice caps, producing more more water that is going to raise the raise our water line. Uh, is there anything that we know about just our ability to create an environment in which our soil holds on to more water that could offset something like that well, compared to what currently is being done? That's a misconception. It's not the melting of the ice caps that's raising the water. It's the um, it's the expansion of water from being warmer. It that increases mm. the volume of water. So it's 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 that's the I you have more more melting in the northern hemisphere, and there's actually I forgot some some more is melting in one pole than the other, but. Um, you know that that's that's a different dynamic but what i'm looking more at is at the microclimate and the local level and when you ch change or you increase the the storage capacity of soil at the microclimate it affects the next microclimate and the next microclimate and it's accumulative so um so when you increase storage capacity through better land management to increase the carbon, you increase the water holding capacity, which allows for more plant growth because plants are limited by water, nitrogen, and CO2. So all that CO2 in the atmosphere can now be turned into cellulose or lignin that you know, are what trees are made of. And, and those trees in turn um, emit uh, what are called biogenic volatile organic compounds or BVOCs for short. And those, those are emitted by the plants themselves, and they help form rain cloud um, consolidation. So because they, you, need, you need nuclear particles for clouds to condense. So all of the water that's just sitting 
that's evaporated and it's it's sitting as haze won't condense unless you have these nuclei from plants. So it's it's kind of a virtuous circle that creates the conditions for rain. And if you look at California, what did we do? We had coastal redwoods, like almost two million acres of coastal redwoods that used to pull uh, pull water up from the roots and we chopped them down. So it screws up the hydrology of that first ridge till you get to the first row of mountains and then you know, then you have less water that moves, you know, west to east. Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. Uh, so along those lines, then with like uh, the reforestation concept as one way, I guess, to kind of restore that, is there other ways we could look at outside of what would just normally be there, like the redwoods? Can we be using like a regenerative practice or a holistic practice that would put something that we would find possibly more usable that would do the same thing then? Well, well, trees are kind of problematic. You have to have the right trees in the right places because some of, some of the problem with fires right now is we have a lot of young trees that are over densely packed in areas where, where there's not enough water to support them and they, they become fuel and they're young and of the same species. So they're more susceptible to, uh, infestation and they die and that all becomes fuel and you have too much density. So you have to thin out some of the trees in some places where in other places you need more trees. But when you're looking at, in terms of what's practical at a more scalable level, this is where regenerative practices come in for farming, um, both in ranching and in integrated systems where you, where you, for like example, what Gabe Brown does and teaches across the nation with his Soil Health Academy, um, you you try to keep ground cover. I mean, there, there are five basic principles. You you want to have plant diversity, continuous roots in the ground. Um, uh, I forget all, all of them. But integrate livestock. And so that way you're always having plants exuding carbon from their roots into into the soil, which builds up the soil carbon, because what happens then is the soil, the, those root exudates feed bacteria, and the bacteria and fungi die, and that necromass becomes organic matter. Um, but, you know, and that's all through just farming practices, and those farming practices reduce the chemical inputs, and they reduce, you know, for fertility and for pesticides, and the advantage with having the livestock and integrated is that when you grow covers, you don't get a return on covers, so it provides another revenue stream, but the, the cattle also graze down the covers, and when the covers, um, they also graze down the crop residues, so you can feed the livestock on the, on the non-cash crops and, and have two revenue streams from the cash crops and from the livestock, which makes it more profitable for farmers, but all that does is when you have continuous ground cover as opposed to a bare fallow or tillage or um, nitrogen inputs, it increases the carbon in the soil, which then increase, improves the hydrology. It, it, it fixes the carbon cycle and the water cycle simultaneously. Hey, Stephen, let me, because uh, you, you, I hope I'm get, not getting too nerdy. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. There's a lot of people going to love this stuff, but I want to, I want to hit some points that you wanted to talk about. And so one of the things you said, there's some misconceptions about where cattle actually are land uses. And then a, a recent sort of interest, 
interesting topic is the Amazon and the fact that the Amazon's burning, the lungs of the earth is burning, and it's the cows eating all the trees or some some something yeah, well, similar. But let's talk a little bit about those topics. Well, let's let's first talk about in the U.S. and then we'll talk about Brazil. In the U.S., you know, I'll I'll, I'll get in these discussions uh, in various social media, and and the the comeback is oh, ninety five percent of livestock are are grain finished okay that's true but as of now the 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 amount of grass finishing is increasing but what that doesn't mean that 95 percent of cattle are in feedlots when you look at the usda numbers feedlot capacity in the u.s is 16 million and at any one time over the past years there's 14 million in feedlots so when you have 82 million beef cattle which is your entire inventory. That means about 80 to 85% of your beef cattle is on grass. And that includes the cows, the calves, the replacement heifers, the bulls, the stockers that are on cow-calf operations and stocker operations. Only when they become yearlings are they transferred to feedlots and started to be fed concentrates. So um, most people you know, when you get in discussions, they get their information from Cowspiracy or from YouTube videos or from other sources, and they don't even use the right nomenclature. <laughs> you know, they're using the colloquial cow to describe everything. So um, I talk to too many ranch people, so we get particular about the language. So you have an open heifer or a steer or a replacement heifer. Um, so there, you know, you look at it, you can improve it's not a simple dichotomy of grass versus grain. You can improve the range management and increase and improve a lot of lands and regenerate a lot of land on cow-calf operations and stocker operations, even if, the, even if the yearlings eventually end up in feedlots. And there are ways that you can improve feedlots too, but we'll, uh, let, me, let me come back to that and go down to Brazil where if you look at Brazil, you know, the way people talk about beef cattle, you think that all the cattle in the world are in <laughs> Amazon and, and they're not. I mean, it's 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 90 million of Brazil's 214 or so million cattle that are in the Amazon. And that's what's been increasing. But uh, that's roughly, you know, six or seven percent of world global inventory. Most beef cattle are in grassland. Uh, ecosystems where they're they're restoring and protecting or preserving those open spaces um, ideally I mean there's better ways to manage uh, cattle with with amp or HPG than continuous grazing but that's and you can increase your stock density so much that you don't even need to have any of of the any any cattle in the Amazon I mean most camel I've been down to the Pantanal and it's it's a nature preserve where you go do it's a where you know there's a lot of ecosystem diversity within that area where you where the cattle are on ecosystem reserves where birders come out to look at all kinds of birds and caiman are in the water and everything like that so if they had better management they wouldn't need that but the thing is there are you know when you look at cattle in the amazon you go down there and ostensibly what you see is the cattle being placed on the land that's been cleared. Uh, but there's a whole process and there's, there's a lot of dynamics that are 
the drivers behind the drivers. So, for example, there was a soy moratorium in the Amazon that was placed in 2006. What that meant was that any land that had been previously cleared could be, com could be converted to soy. So what happened? They, they converted land that was being grazed to soy, and then they chopped down more uh, forest for grazing land. Um, conversely, there was no moratorium put in the lower area below the Amazon, which is the Cerrado, um, and therefore, all, a lot of soy production moved south, and what was grazing moved north. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and the thing now is, in the Amazon, the soy is a lot more profitable. So areas that can be converted to soy production, which are the flatlands, are converted to soy productions, but it, it's usually after two years. And Steve, let me let me just interject here because you know, and that's a very important point you make that soy is very profitable. And the misconception a lot of people think is this the cows in, in Brazil are eating these soybeans, which is you know, I mean, not the, not the case. Maybe you can expand upon that. But the main driver of the soy economics, from my understanding, is soybean oil, which is used for human consumption, and then the leftover meal, which is a larger percentage of the product. But at the same time, that is fed fed to largely pigs in China. Uh, but I mean, the soybean oil is what's driving the economics behind soy planting, if uh, I'm not mistaken. That was originally the case with soybean oil. Uh, when soy crushing industry started, all of the soy meal was a byproduct and they didn't really know what to do with it. And then they figured out to feed it to chickens. Um, and in Brazil, you know, it's, it's roughly four parts meal to one point oil, one part oil. But the thing is the oil is worth two to two and a half times the amount of the meal. So when it comes to value, the value of the of the crop is about 35 40 percent oil and 60 percent meal and the thing is you know it's not like two separate piles of, or two separate bushels of soybeans it's it's one bushel that's crushed that provides these two different products now in in so soybean oil still is a huge component and is still a big price factor, but now you would consider them co-products as opposed to where initially the meal was a byproduct. In the U.S., one of the things I looked at was with the FAO stats, because what we did was basically replace animal fats with vet plant fats. And currently, per the FAO stats that I looked at, uh, Soybean oil consumption is nearly 600 calories of uh, per day of of a uh, of an average American. I don't know how they do. It's all trapped in in um, processed foods, including a lot of processed vegan foods. Um, but when you go back to Brazil, they also have a huge chicken industry. So I was just going over this in an email with a with a friend and. Uh, he was insisted upon beef being eating all the soy. And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> uh, they, you, you finish cattle on, on carbs. You don't finish them on proteins. Soy is proteins. And so if soy is used in any way, it's used as a protein supplement, but in the U S the only it's only been recently considered because we've all this glut of soy and prices have come down where other, other components are, are a lot cheaper to feed cattle. In Brazil, 
Um, looking at their domestic numbers, it was 50% goes to chicken, 25% goes to pork, uh, and 12% goes to dairy and and beef cattle. And I would I would imagine most of that goes to dairy because dairy need more protein when the cows are lactating. Um, and now that's that was. 12% of domestic, which is only 30% of what they keep. 70% is exported to China and EU with the EU being the prime, with China being the primary customer. And a lot, yeah, goes, goes to China for, for their pig CAFOs. So no, the, basically the, it's a, it's a huge misconception that the soy goes to beef cattle. They, it doesn't. <laughs> Or it, if it does, it's a small part. Or if it does, it's the husk shells of the bean pods, you know, that are roasted and then fed to the bean cattle. The the oil is actually toxic to to cattle. So, um, and most of, a lot of their oil goes to biofuels. And they also plant a lot of sugarcane crop, which also like fifty five percent goes to ethanol in Brazil. And that too has displaced grazing area. You know, so it's it's there's a lot of displacement. There's a lot of management. The end game is really soy because that's most profitable. The beef cattle is a problem. It's and in truth, no no beef cattle should be in the Amazon. It really shouldn't be there. And most, if you talk to any regenerative farmer, they'll agree it's not the right ecosystem for beef production. The soils are also very oxalic, meaning they're very acidic. So you have to you have to lime them to re bring up the pH, and then you have to phosphate them to to uh, make them fertile. And then they seed the grasses to make them to to have forage for the cattle. So it's it's not even a natural place for for uh, forage creation without all of the petrochemicals that are added to the to the soil. Is is there any like ruminant or type of grazing creature that would be appropriate for the Amazon, or are they is that ecosystem just well, unsuitable in, as a whole? You know, there I, I've historically I, I don't know enough about that region, but there are other pygmy ruminants uh, that are cattle that are in forest systems in the Philippines and in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, to what extent? the herd sizes were you know with with now we don't know how how big these herds were i mean when you look at europe we had huge herds of auric but they were killed off four or five hundred years ago so we can't even guesstimate how large the herds were before man killed most of them off so i i don't really know the answer to that question they did have you know llama and other ruminants in those regions um uh and there were there was also this other type of uh grazing herbivore that went extinct about five thousand years ago, but I can't remember its name. Um that was pretty prevalent. But you know, when you look at Brazil, Brazil's we look at a, a map projection that makes all of the continents in the southern half of the hemisphere look a lot smaller than they actually are. When you go to a like a website like True Size, you can see that the entire United States fits in most of Brazil. Brazil and the landmass is huge. Africa and the landmass is a lot bigger than what we perceive looking at the version of the map that we usually look at. So the the rainforest is almost like three quarters of the size of the U.S. It's huge. And 
one of the things that you look at, you know, like I said, it's a process. One of the things that's a driver that people don't really look at too much because it is mineral extraction um, with bauxite, for example, aluminum, uh, you know, the, the campaigns are funded by contractors to get kickbacks with these, uh, with these contracts to build dams in the Amazon. And, and this brings in all the roadways and infrastructure that facilitates, you know, chopping the timber and getting timber out of the Amazon. So it's a, a process. And um, the dams are for bauxite is because uh, to, to turn bauxite into alumina into aluminum it's a it's a very energy intensive process it's about a third of the cost so they use the the hydroelectricity to instead of you know coal generated power to to uh to create the aluminum which is largely exported so that's a big driver too um and it also if, if minerals are discovered on land that that leads to a lot of land speculation and land speculation is probably one of the biggest drivers because the land without trees on it is worth, you know, 100 to 200 times more than land with trees on it. So, um, you know, and, and land's flipped for, from, from land's grabbed, it's, it's flipped for, uh, it's flipped to cattle ranchers and then flipped to soy growers. And, and each time they make a lot of money off of the land exchange. And when the land is no longer productive, they just go and grab more land and slash more land and it becomes a whole uh, vicious cycle. And then, then with all the soy production occurring there, then they got to get roots of getting that soy to ports to get it to China. And that creates more infrastructure, which facilitates deforestation. But when you look at it in general, this is all driven by, you know, global commodities and, and you know, maximize value off the land. If cattle wasn't there, it would be palm oil like it's in Malaysia or Indochina. It would be another crop to derive value from the land. It's not like if you stop eating beef, especially here in the U.S. where very little to no beef from Brazil is currently uh, – allowed to come into the country, it, it's not going to change that underlying Wild West greed of, you know, let's develop the land because it's our land, you exploited your land, now we can do what, whatever we want with our land. So um, it doesn't change that dynamic, whether you eat beef or don't eat beef. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think that's an important point to say that, you know, if it wasn't 
cattle. I mean, right now you're saying they're they're killing the cattle. They're taking the cattle from they're, they're displacing the cattle by growing sugarcane and soybeans, and so they're moving just moving them around. They're basically just shuffling the deck a little bit. And if we stopped eating beef, they would plant soybeans or coffee or acai berries or whatever the hell they can make money on in the rainforest. That's just what's going on there. And I think, and you know, the people in Brazil are, are exactly what you're saying. It's like, hey guys, you guys de- depleted Europe. You depleted North America, your natural resources to build what you are, become, you know, the economic powers you are. And we've got a relatively big population. that's not as well off financially. And now we want to do the same here. And it's not necessarily cattle it's whatever it's just the people there so that's a that's a very different thing it's also interesting to note that the deforestation rates at least from what i've read have actually decreased you know from what they were 20 say 20 years ago where they were really you know at a rapid pace and now that's slowed down significantly so there has been some some improvement in that if i'm not mistaken is that correct they peaked in 2004 2005 and then they they went down to 2012 uh 2013 and they've been creeping back up and with Bolsonaro um, everybody's doing everything with impunity he's he's cut enforcement further so now now they're scaling back up so um, it's it's I'm not overly optimistic with Bolsonaro in power so um, it is it's a huge problem so I don't want to diminish it but at the same time when you look at you know um, I, I'm going to make two points on this when you look at deforestation globally, uh, rates of deforestation in Malaysia and Indochina were actually higher from, you know, 2008 to 2014. And and there the main product was palm oil and paper pulp. So again, the land's going to be exploited um, as long as we have a global demand for these products. Um, and and chi- feeding China is a huge issue. <laughs> you know, they're depleting the you know, there, there. I think what we really need to move to is is to insect feeds, where China doesn't have. China can produce black soldier flies and feed their pigs and chickens with those, rather than, rather than the soy meal. That that would be a solution, and they could do the same thing with their aquaculture that way. Let me ask you because there's some people that would suggest that people just need to start eating insects, and I mean, obviously there are many people throughout the world that do eat insects, but I would argue that's probably not an optimal food source for humans. I just don't think we're designed to, to subsist on, on insects for, for a number of different reasons. Um, but that's, that's a very interesting concept that, that, you know, we could grow, we could, and I don't know what black soldier flies taste like. I have no interest in eating them, but how, how do we know that works for animals? I mean, do we have any models that show that animals can be healthily raised in well, a healthy fashion eating if, insects? If you have ever seen chickens on pasture <laughs> or chickens follow cows on pasture, I mean, that's what they eat a large part of is insects. Um, yeah, but, chick- a, but, but let's say cows. I mean, can you, oh, you talk no, about no, chickens? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking chicks and, chickens and pigs. I'm pigs, not talking, okay. uh, cattle should, are ruminants. They're, 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 they're on pasture, forage, grasses. That's what their natural diet is. So instead, of, so instead of feeding, you know, because pork is huge in Asia. I just got back from Malaysia, and the appetite for pork there is huge. It's going to continue to grow. I think that's their preferred. It's my understanding. It's their, their most preferred meat, and it's one of the most consumed meats in the world. When you look at a worldwide cow, I think it even surpasses beef. Um, but so if we were to stop eat, feeding pigs soybeans from the Amazon and feed them insects from well i don't know where you could, i guess you could raise them locally in china that that would 
you think that's a realistic solution or how yeah, would that play out? There are companies now that are producing these feeds, like EnviroFlight out of Kentucky. Um, that you can you can actually raise the soldier flies on food waste so um and and they require a lot less land area and they can be done locally um there are some small farmers that do it you know for uh uh and you know i mean that that's a that's a way but you know again i think what's driving the market is to go back to that oil because that's still 40 percent of the value of the crop I always tell people if they want to save a orangutan, they should eat a lard pig um, because you can use the, the fat from a lard pig, you know, for all the, all the cooking uses that palm oil is used for. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to make another point about the, about the, the rates of deforestation, because when you look at the 2006 and 2013 uh, UNFAO reports, long shadow reports that people always reference. Um, one of the things that occurs there is that they're still using those peak rates of deforestation as their metric to, uh, you know, to, to add into the land use that they are attributing to animal agriculture. And so that's why when you actually read the report, I think it's like 57% of the beef number was from Brazil, but it had to do with deforestation. So that's why when you look at the US and we're actually have some afforestation where we're adding trees, that the number is so much lower in the US. It's not simply due to how we manage it. It's that we're not, you know, destroying all these carbon sinks to create, um, you know, pasture for cattle. So, you know, when you actually look at the UN, they had some reports per country for the UN Climate Change Conference in 2014. The, just looking at enteric methane, it was 2.14%. And that's not accounting for any offsets or any sinks from, you know, tropospheric or soil sinks. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's fairly negligible um, compared to other sources of methane. But, you know, I know... Frank uh, Middlehour has talked a lot about this, so I won't. I don't feel a need to go over it as much. No, but I do think that's an important topic, you know. And I think there's a there's so many things we can cover here. But I mean the, you know, the methane that has been attributed to ruminant animals, I think, has been uh, widely over exaggerated, or at least the impact of the methane. I think that's an important concept. And I've seen, you know, studies. I think NASA's JPL, you know, Jet Propulsion Labs, and some other folks have done atmospheric sampling looking at isotopic methane levels and seeing that the methane increases that we have seen in the last recent three or four decades are not coming from cattle they're coming from other sources and i've seen you know whether it's uh hydroelectric power wetlands you know natural gas harvesting so on and so forth that seems to be the major increase where methane's come from and then we have to talk about the fact that methane is a short-lived greenhouse gas and and well well, methane is accounted for two ways. There's bottom-up analysis and there's top-down analysis. The bottom-up analysis is you look at all the sources that you know and you extrapolate. So if you have one cow that emits X amount of uh, methane, you know, that you've tested via a chamber mask or tracer to determine how much of methane they're emitting, then you multiply that by the number of cattle. Now, uh, 
doing this kind of bottom-up analysis tends to overcount and it tends to point the finger at things that are easy to measure. It's much easier to measure the number of cows than it is the number of cockroaches that also emit enteric methane. Arthropods emit enteric methane. Uh, Blue-green algae <laughs> emits methane. Um, anywhere you have uh, methanotrophic archaea, emit methane. So that could be in the rhizosphere of rice paddies or in wetlands or in beaver ponds. So that's all microbial methane that tends to be cyclical and part of the carbon cycle that, you know, it's either broken down to a small extent by methanotrophs in the soil or by hydroxyl radicals in the atmosphere. It doesn't arise unabated and form a big cloud that keeps accumulating. It's always breaking down to water and eventually to CO2, which uh, is photosynthesized back to cellulose or lignin that's consumed. It's either, if it's consumed by the cattle, it's converted to short-chain fatty acids, hydrogen, and, and some of the excess CH4, which is emitted, which again hit, inter, hits with a hydroxyl radical and eventually breaks down the CO2 and does that continuous cycle. So it's, it's a closed loop. And in some form or another, we've had a lot of microbial um, methane and, and, it's, and the atmospheric levels haven't risen. Now, in the 1750s, when we started industrialization, we were releasing ancient trap forms of methane which, and, and CO2 that have, you know, obviously haven't been in the atmosphere for hundreds of millions of years. So these are the ones that are exceeding the cycle that are increasing the rates. And it's a small, it's, you know, most, most of its cycles, most CO2 cycles, and it's that little bit that doesn't cycle that compounds like interest. So when you want to repair the cycle, you got you to gotta get those sources that exceed the cycle and, and bring them down. So that way you can have the reverse of compounding effect. And, and the way you can draw down the most carbon without, you know, a lot of extractive infrastructure and technology is, is with ruminants, uh, grazing, and, and other carbon farming practices. So let's, let's just take, if I can make an attempt maybe to summarize a bit. So if we take that bottom-up analysis, is there, since there's so many potential factors in within that type of a way of drawing our metrics, is there really any use for that? Um, I, I think it's more polemical than anything else. You know, that people have a, have a, a part in the pun, a beef with cattle, then they're, they're gonna, they're gonna point to bottom up and say, we got to re reduce or remove cattle. Um, but when you look at the top down analysis, this is what, um, uh, Sean was originally referring to that's looking at measuring points up in the atmosphere and measuring sources of um, uh, methane that all have slightly different signatures due to different C12, C13, and C14 uh, variations in the in the methane. So, um, so when the the problem there is some of the microbial uh, methane has a certain signature, and what they call the um, the sources from fuel, which the word is eluding me because I didn't get enough sleep last night. Um, those, those sources, uh, 
pyrogenic is from fire, and I'm trying to think of the third word, which I can't think of. Uh, that that source of fuel, ev everything has a, a signature. So if you're looking at, you have to take inventories. And part of the problem with a lot of early top-down analysis is they didn't have enough inventory. So stuff was being misattributed to cattle that should have been, or to other livestock. And now they're, some people are saying it's attributed to it should be attributed to fossil fuel. There was a big study came. There was a study that came out of Cornell that showed that the synthesis of of uh, synthetic nitrogen produced a hundred times more uh, methane than had been reported by the industry. So there are all these new additional sources that have uh, exceeded the cycle that have created the rise in atmospheric methane but at the same time that methane is a short-lived gas it breaks down it does convert some to co2 so um it if you can reduce that ch4 you can you can reduce the overall co2 levels significantly um so it it, it does retain more heat you know there there's some trade-offs but again getting to the basic bottom line it doesn't appear to be coming from ruminants which we've always had large massive herds of ruminants just like we've also always we used to have a lot more wetlands and we used to have a lot more beavers and beavers make pods that are that are agnostic environments that emit methane so you know reducing all of the natural microbial whether they're anthropogenic or biogenic sources of methane is is sort of a red herring where the reality is we got to reduce those new sources that exceed and you know that's your fracking gas, your coal bed gas, your your synthetic nitrogen. Uh, those are those are the you know hundred thousand pound gorillas in the room that when we when people start going uh, talking too much about cattle, it's it's basically a, a way to distract from the real culprit. Yeah, I've seen some some actually some uh, uh, I guess oil and gas industry folks. Uh, putting out advertisements saying don't eat meat, you know, <laughs> kind of deflecting their, you know, it, it is kind of funny to see that, but that's what's happening. Hey, let's talk about um, you, you, something, you kind of listed something called false dichotomies, grain versus grass finished meat, meat versus plants. Uh, let, let's touch on that a little bit. I want to just, one comment I want to make from something earlier you said, you know, if we were to say we were to successfully transition, say the pigs in, in China onto, you know, eating insects to, to feed them. Do you think that would seriously impact the soy deforestation in Brazil, or would they still be planting soybeans for the soybean oil? Well, that's that's why I'm saying the soybean oil is still a large driver of why the crops are planted. I mean, Unilever uses them, um, you know, in all of their products. You, you have soybean oil in a lot of processed foods. You have the soy lecithin, which is extracted from the the soybean oil, which is an emulsifier in a lot of vegetarian and vegan foods so it, it, it's it's you know you need another you, you need to go back to animal fats basically i mean that's that's uh and the animal fats when you look at the core i mean i'm i'm not one to you know say correlation equals causation but when you look at the rise in heart disease it correlates pretty neatly with when we switched from butter to margarine and switched from uh animal fats to, to, to plant fats. 
I mean, we've really cut back on plant fat, I mean, on animal fats, and we've drastically increased our consumption of, of plant fats. And we, you know, a lot of people say the soybean oil is obesogenic. Uh, it easily, it's, it's, you know, high omega-6, it's, which many say is inflammatory. You know, there are a lot of, it easily oxidizes, same with canola oil, you know, and that could, you know, create oxidation of your, you know, of your LDL. So, um, you know, it's, it's not a healthy food, no matter what Walter Willett says, or has been paid to say by Unilever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I find it interesting. And I saw a stat that, that currently, and, and this is a few years old and may have surpassed it, that, that our, our caloric consumption of soybean oil exceeds our caloric consumption of beef here in the United States currently, which is pretty interesting, pretty, pretty disturbing to think, uh, to see that. Well, beef consumption has gone down at the same in the U.S. at the same time that you know diabetes and prediabetes and obesity has gone up. There's no correlation whatsoever, but you know that doesn't stop people from making all kinds of wacky claims based on weak you know EPA studies. Yeah, I mean, I think we peaked in about seventy-five, seventy-seven on beef consumption. We've dropped something like twenty-five, thirty percent since then. Let's let's talk about beef. Uh, grain versus grass finish and talk about let's talk a little bit about that because a lot of people have very um compartmentalized views about grain finishing um you know what a factory farm is you know they're all in cages it's chickens it's pigs it's, i mean there's differences and nuances and there's different percentages and, and i mean well you like i said i've been to some feedlots i've been to some cattle ranches i've seen some i've talked to a lot of ranches but let me hear your experience and your your perspective well, on this stuff i mean Pigs and chickens are a complete different world for the most part. They go from insemination to cellophane without ever being outdoors. Uh, beef cattle, you know, like they said, they're they're not weaned until six months. They're they're they may be sold as stockers, and then the and then stockers are then sold as yearlings to feedlots, which are then uh, which are then you know, sold to the meat packers who do the distribution. But the the thing is, real good grass finishing is very difficult. There's a, there's a limited window when you can grass finish cattle. So it's actually more of a seasonal product if you want it fresh. So what's happening in the grass finishing world is that um, to you have everybody trying to get access to the processor at the same time of the year within a region. And, and so, um, so it's, it's a very, it's a, it's, it's just, and, and then they, they, they don't, they get their animals processed and they get the, the meat back and then they sell the meat directly. Um, whereas with, you know, grain finishing, it, the whole point is that you can finish any time of the year. You have carbs to finish the animal any time of the year, so it makes it more of a commodity product. Um, and the 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 cow calf operators sell their sell their calves to stockers, who stockers sell to feedlots, feedlots sell the live animals to meat processors, who 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 then sell the meat. So it's a completely different business model. Now I don't get you know. The, the thing is, one's trying to be a commodity and one's very land specific. It ha it's like wine. It has a terroir. You know, the quality of the, the, the nutrients are going to reflect the quality of the forage and the health of the soil. So, you know, uh, grass finished meat, 
beef when it's done properly also isn't necessarily lean. You can, with the right genetics and the, and the right timing, you can get sufficient fat and you want that fat because the fat is where the fat soluble vitamins are, especially the A, D and K2. So, um, but you know, uh, there are advantages. It's just difficult, especially in areas that are, you know, a lot more seasonal to, to do it. Um, so it's, it, it's tricky, but there are ways that you can, you can uh, reduce the time in feedlot uh, by having uh, the, instead by backgrounding the, the yearlings in, in fields on covers and, and crop residues. So there are ways to improve it. So I don't really see it as nothing. I don't see, I don't really like to think of it as a big fight. Like I said, at the beginning of our conversation, you know, you can regenerate and improve a lot of land on cow-calf operations and on stocker operations, even if those stockers end up in feedlots. I mean, ideally, I purchase and eat only grass-finished meat, but I also buy it in large quantity, have a chest freezer, so the cost per pound isn't, is, is pretty affordable, but I'm not eating, you know, I'm not eating all the primal primal cuts. I'm not eating all the ribeyes only. I'm eating a lot of chuck roasts and some other bits. So, um, so I, I just don't see it as, I see it as two products, two different products, and, and there's a niche for both products. And I mean, ideally, I prefer the grass finish because I think you get the most benefit to the soil uh, the longer the animal is out on the soil. And I also think there's a, a number of things that need to be improved on the feedlot system to optimize it from an environmental point of view. And, you know, that means sourcing the, the grains from regenerative farms using regenerative practices so you don't have all the synthetic nitrogen use. Um, and, you know, using covers and some other stuff to optimize that, that method of production. Hey, Steve, let me, let me touch on that because not everybody in the world is a carnivore <laughs> on a carnivore diet. And we, we're eating, you know, an omnivorous diet and there's a lot of things. So talk about, you just mentioned something that's important. You said regeneratively grown grain or whatever, but I mean, assume that can be, that can occur for a whole bunch of things. Talk a little bit about plant agriculture because you know, people are always focused on animal agriculture and the, pro the environmental potential problems. And I would say that all human activity has potential environmental problems, whether it's plant agriculture, animal agriculture, or making shoes. Um, so talk a little bit about the, the challenges that the folks, because I don't want to beat up on all the farmers and say, you know, all you farmers are monocrop guys destroying the soil, because there's some folks even in that arena that have ways that they can, they can help the land out. So can you talk well, a little bit about that? The thing with any food, it can be grown or raised or caught in ways that range from very bad to very good. And more often it's the, the how and the appropriateness of where more so than the what that, um, that determines whether the production is good or bad. That's why I consider myself a regenitarian. You can be a regenitarian uh, carnivore, you can be a regenitarian vegan, you can be a regenitarian keto uh, nutrivore, which is what I kind of consider myself, because it focuses more on food production processes. So, I mean, for example, um, you know, uh, a lot of almond production is horrific. A lot of it uses a lot of nitrogen to increase yields. Uh, they're the large commercial operations are pumping dry 
ancient aquifers that took thousands of years to fill up. The, the whole valley is uh, collapsing 30 feet because the, the, the aquifers are, have collapsed. But, you know, that's a bad application where you can dry farm almonds too. And if you, if you have another revenue source, say you're running, um, you know, you're creating bees or you're, you're upscaling the products, you, can, you don't need the yields to be as profitable. I mean, it's, it's the same thing with silvopasture. You can, on the same land, you can, you can, you know, generate more than one revenue stream. The problem is the commodity model with whether it's industrialization, organic, a lot of organic practices are bad too, because they rely on tillage. They rely on, you know, bare fallows, meaning there's nothing planted between crops, which allows to a lot of soil oxidation. So there, there are good, good and better ways to do no-till organics. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, people have to realize, you know, everything wants to eat your food <laughs> that you're growing or, or raising, so it needs to be protected. So, you know, you, the, the thing with a lot, when you improve soil health, you can reduce the organic pesticides, which also kill, you know, soil ecosystems. Um, you know, there, there are better systems and people should be focusing on op best practices in the, in the most appropriate places rather than fighting over, you know, whether you should eat how much meat you should eat or how much plants you should eat. I eat a lot more meat than I used to because I can here in California where we have a lot of crop production. I've been on farms and they're not using regenerative practices. They have, they're, they're tilling, they're, they're burning down weeds. They're, they're using a lot of organic pesticides. Um, organic isn't, you know, necessarily the ideal that it's made out to be. It's a lot better than a lot of the industrial practices, but still it has its, you know, when you till soil, you release all that soil carbon into the atmosphere. You shred uh, mycorrhizal fungi networks, which are necessary for mineral distribution. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. So, um, and where I source my beef from, and I'll put in a plug for Mariposa Ranch. <laughs> Seth will appreciate that. Um, you know, he he's regenerating land. He's recreating a grassland environment that supports more life, other life. So, you know, there's a balance. You lose the life of the cattle, but you're restoring grassland, which um, restores, you know, insect populations, pollinator, you know, populations, small mammal populations. Because a lot of the ag, and especially industrial ag, when you look at something like, uh, like Impossible Burger, it's entirely reliant on industrial ag. And that, that's, that industrial ag, you know, we have, he's, they use glyphosate on most GMO soy and glyphosate destroys, you know, mycorrhizal networks in soil. So it's really not sequestering more carbon, even though it's no till and it, and it destroys the soil food web. It destroys the bacteria, you know, and it, it, it basically creates a collapse from the bottom up. So you, we're, we're having insect populations that are dying off and that means we have bird populations and small amphibian populations are dying off so you know there's a there's a level of consequence whether it's direct or mean you know numbers of degrees of separation but the ironic thing is if you're getting a pasture and this is something you've said yourself if you're eating uh, a head of cattle nose to tail or whatever um, off of a 
off of a regenerative system, it's restoring an ecosystem, you're responsible for a lot less death than if you're a ethical vegan who has no clue about where any of this food is coming from. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HBO is brought to you by Juve. Juve uses targeted red light therapy to help assist with the changes to light exposure in our modern environment. I've been trying out their desktop model recently and Sean has been using their full body model. I personally love the convenience of the desktop model for when I'm working on coaching plans or editing podcasts and just kind of generally sitting at the computer for long parts of the day. I can just set it and kind of forget it and it'll expose me to that red light therapy. Juve uses a unique Lego block design, so if you start small, you can always add units later to build a bigger model. If you think you might benefit from more red light exposure, check out some of the wide-ranging clinically proven benefits to red light therapy that are focused on things like recovery, sleep, performance, inflammation, etc. If you like what you see, consider Juve's third-party tested Class 2 FDA registered devices. Their options include door or wall mounts, mobile stands, and even a portable Juve Mini. Head over to juve.com forward slash HPO. That's J-O-O-V-V dot C-O-M forward slash HPO to see Sean's training video. Enter HPO at the checkout for a gift with your purchase. Now back to the show. Yeah, Stephen, you know, that's, that's really an interesting topic. And I think like it's really been kind of eye-opening to me as I've looked into that stuff a bit more. And we've had guests come in and talk about that. And, you know, my first thought was with when we look at like a vertical farming type of a setup or a regenerative, you know, setup, it's like, you know, at first I was like, oh, this is great. We can please everyone. We can please the vegans. We can please the omnivores. We can please the carnivores and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, then, you know, we get into this like, conversation of scalability and at first it's like you know people will point to stats but oh we can't feed the world on regenerative agriculture and for me i think it's like that's that's making a prediction that we probably can't make yet uh and you can tell me if i'm wrong about that but uh you know my my overall thing is like when i see companies like general mills who i think a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are probably going to be more or less uh trying to avoid uh, but they're also jumping into the regenerative side of things. They're, you know, they, they ran a test on, uh, on the white oaks, oaks pastures land to look at kind of what kind of carbon sequestration was going on with that process of farming. And, uh, you know, to me, that signals that, okay, we've got people kind of in both camps, the animal ag as well as plant agriculture are starting to kind of take a look at this in a little more detail or starting to maybe try to turn this massive ship. Is that kind of what you're seeing too, or is there going to be scalability issues? If so, is there a workaround for that? Well, I mean, the, the feed, the world, um, I mean, to be blunt, it's, it, it, the whole scalability and the inability to do it is, is bullshit. I mean, cause the problem is at the rate we're losing topsoil, um, which, you know, in certain areas we may be out of topsoil in 40 years in other areas, it may be 80 or 120 years, but on average, um, the UN said it was about 60 years, uh, without fertile topsoil, it doesn't matter whether, what, what your dietary pattern is, cause we're all going to be screwed. And the way you're going to restore the soil is through regenerative practices. So if you create healthy soil, that's how you feed the world. And 
um, I, I know a little bit about General Mills because I'm friends with Chris uh, Kirsten at the Savory Institute. They've been working together to uh, when uh, General Mills bought Epic Bar. Epic Bar, um, they uh, you know they're conscientious about their sourcing and and how their how their animals that they use are raised. And some of that has permeated with some people at at, at General Mills. So they're uh, more concerned about their sourcing as well. So if, when you have these large companies that are looking for uh, regeneratively grown graze, grains, even though I, I don't eat that many grains myself, that, that helps create a market for those products. So it's, it, it's it's a big company, but there are a lot of different people in that company. Some some are embracing regenerative values. Some of the old people probably aren't. Um, I've met one of couple of the people at um, General General Mills who are embracing regenerative ag, and if they start sourcing it, it creates more of a market. Now the whole thing with regenerative ag, it, it's it's not one thing. It's a it's a set of things that that can and it all and it's very profitable it's more profitable for farmers because um right now farmers spend a lot of money on you know chemical inputs nitrogen you know npks nitrogen phosphorus potassium they spend a lot of money on pesticides they spend a lot of money on seeds when you go to regenerative eggs you can cut all those costs all all that money that you're spending so as gabe uh brown who you you should really have on your podcast. Um, I'll try to fix you up if you want. Be great. Um, um, he 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 says his his line is he'd rather sign the back of checks than the front of checks. So he's not spending all that money on all those inputs, and he's getting similar yields because he's improved his soil health. And you know it takes time, and he's learned stuff. But now Gabe's out there, you know. I call it the gospel Gabe. He's sharing everything he learned with other farmers who see his example and are starting to overcome a lot of their conservatism. But, you know, right now the biggest impediment is how we do crop insurance, which encourages a lot of uh, soil, bad soil practices. Um, so, and it's a way to kick back money to the Cokes for fertilizer and other political things as well. But, um, you know that's the that's the impediment. The impediment are these entrenched interests to profit off of farmers. I want the farmers to make the money. I want the ranchers to make the money. Right now, farmers and ranchers make farmers make like twelve cents of every dollar of food they produce. Um, if 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 they can if they can use these regenerative practices and create their own markets and uh, they can make a, a larger share of that profit and and you can have a lot of small smaller operations um, like the rest of the world where 50% of all food is done by people with five acres or less um, and don't buy into all the industrial ag propaganda because that's largely what it is. And that they want you to continue to buy the, you know, the, the, the bioengineered seed. They want you to continue to buy the, the nitrogen fertilizer. They want you to continue to buy uh, uh all the pesticides and herbicides because that's how they make their money and the the stupid thing is you look at uh like things like eat forum or even walter willett's research at harvard it's a lot, a lot of it's backed by these big food companies 
um, who, who want to, you know, keep the status quo. So they push this grain based diet. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so, so it, it's kind of funny. They, they keep saying that they're disruptive and trying to disrupt the meat industry where they're actually uh, continuing or trying to further establish an industrial model. And that industrial model is what's destructive. So if, like I said at the beginning, the, the real dichotomy is regenerative practices versus industrial and degenerative practices. Yes, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. When, when, when you said like uh, the soil health and how much time like, you know, that that has left before essentially, you know, we're kind of, we can't, we can't grow crops or raise animals on it because I mean, essentially to make the argument to do anything, if, if I'm, let me summarize here for a second, if to, to, to take an approach outside of regenerative is basically just kicking the ball down the road at best. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to change the mindset and, and we have to, and yeah, basically if, if we're, if we're going to stick with this industrial model that we try to further optimize, um, it, it's, it's, it's what's truly destroying the planet. I mean, nitrogen fertilizer displaces carbon, um, it leaches into waterways because, uh, inorganic nitrogen isn't very well utilized by plants. Um, it creates, you know, algae blooms, which leads to dead zones. I mean, there's a lot of horrific ramifications. I mean, there, if you want to buy into the EPA studies, they're also connecting a lot of the nitrates from, from these fertilizers to breast cancer and other cancers. So um, it, it, it's, it's pretty insidious, actually. And, and here you have somebody like Pat Brown at a, at a, at a you know, Impossible Foods, saying his things environmental, you know, and improves the environment where he's actually in perpetuating and facilitating a system that's really destroying the, you know, the environment. I, I call it the Echo Side Burger, which was the title of one of my blog posts. Hey, uh, Stephen, I want to just sort of a couple topics that, you, I mean, you know, I think it's very important to realize that, you know, you've got that, that, that sentence you said about, you know, farmers only getting 12 cents on the dollar and we're seeing most of that profit being, you know, sent up through, you know, when it comes to the meat industry, Cargill, Tyson Foods, JBS, and, and I can't remember the fourth one, National, something national. I can't remember what the last one is, but. Mar Marsig bought National. It's Marsig, okay. So you've got these, all these big producers, they're, they're taking the lion's share of the profit. They're driving the policy, even NCBA and the, and the beef checkoff program, I think, skews towards these guys i think they're, they're you know i find you know just looking at it as an outsider i think the ranchers are not getting a fair shake of the deal even by the rep, their national representative organizations in my view because i think they're capitulating these I, big, big companies i'm gonna i'm gonna hook you up with my buddy mike calicrate who's um uh who helped found the ocm uh which is a organization of competitive markets because he 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 can go and he can talk about this forever. Um, and he's part of lawsuits that are challenging the national, the national council who are working on behalf of the meat packers. When you talk about the meat industry, you know, in, in regards to beef, it's the meat packers. Most of, most of the cow calf operations and stocker operations, those are family owned operations. They're not any part of the industry. You know, I always find this uh, ruse, you know, whenever, whenever there's a vegan film or 
piece of propaganda. It's always the meat industry. And they never recognize the role that the pharmaceutical industry or the big food companies play in, in funding all of that other research that they rely upon. Um, but uh, getting back to the national, you know, they, they're in cahoots basically with the meat packers. And, uh, you know, this is where we, we really need uh, to reinstate COOL, which country of origin labeling, uh, so that that right now, once, once, the, once the sanctions against Brazil are lifted and they, JB, JBS imports their beef, they can undercut the, you know, the pricing of, of local producers. Um, and we don't want that beef in this country. We have all of our own great beef here already. Um, we don't need it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, right, right, right now how it's right now how it's set up. If if you have something that's raised and grown in Argentina or whatever, and it's shipped here, frozen live or or uh, fresh, and it goes through some additional processing in the U.S., it can be labeled a product of the U.S., which is absurd. Um, we need that greater transparency. Yeah, when I was up speaking with at the U.S. Cattlemen's Association last year, that was one of the concerns. Is cool, you know, cool got repealed. I think I think Obama's administration appealed that. I can't. I think maybe I can't remember who put it in. Maybe Bush, but it's kind of a thing. Yeah, it's important if you want to know where your meat's coming from. You need you need that law to be reenacted or, or you know re put on the book. But I want to ask you about. Um, so there's a concept that many people that are proponents of this, you know, Pat Brown, Ethan Brown, the guys from Impossible Foods Beyond Meat. Uh, and many of the vegan proponents or plant-based proponents say there's just no way regenerative agriculture has worked. There's not enough land for that to happen. Mm -hmm. You'd have to, you'd have to graze the size of the whole world times two to, to, to do that. Talk about land availability and, and the, the, the real pr practicality and sustainability of making that happen in a regenerative fashion in a larger <laughs> scale. Uh, you know, even including perhaps a hybrid model where you do do some grain finishing, but let's talk about the, well, the suitability I, of the plant. I, I, I call that the not enough land fallacy, um, because when you look at the state of, of land degradation that we currently have, I mean, we have land that's not usable for any use, like 1.5 billion hectares of land that's so degraded, we can't graze or grow crops on it. And unless, when you regenerate that land, you make that land productive when you start using integrated systems, land that currently is only used for crops, uh, only for crops, that land can be used to produce and grow cattle. When you actually regenerate land that is currently being grazed and you improve uh, the, capa the forage capacity and the carbon and the water holding capacity of the land, you can increase the, uh, the the carrying capacity of that land up sometimes three up to time tenfold sometimes. I mean, there are huge potential for raising the same amount of cattle on, uh, I mean, excuse me, raising a lot more cattle on the same land. So it, it, it's really, I mean, and it's, and the numbers are, are big. I mean, it's, and the thing is a lot of the, like I said at the very beginning, some of the misconception is a lot of people think all the cattle's on feedlots. Most of the cattle isn't on feedlots. What you got to do is increase enough cattle on, uh, you have to increase the capacity maybe 20, 
20 more million to meet current loads in the U.S. So it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a fallacy. I mean, a lot of the, there are a lot of fallacies with the arguments. I mean, we spoke a little bit about water. Uh, feed efficiency is a big fallacy because, you know, there's the caveat that most of what the cattle are eating are stuff that we can't eat. So, and the other one when it comes to not enough land or land use is that when you actually go on regenerative ranches, which I recommend people do so they can see how they actually work firsthand, the cattle are kept together in, in herds, bunches. So they're only on a 1% or 2% of the land at, at any one time. And the rest of the land has been re reinvigorated, restored for all the life. So they're wildlife habitats. They're like more like preserves than ranches. So it's not like that land is only used for cattle. It's, it's, it's a wildlife preserve that's used by all the, all the wild animals too. Um, the cattle preserve the open space that might otherwise be developed, turn into housing complexes, uh, used for energy uh, extraction. Um, so it, it, you know, all of these, all of these, you know, stats that they like to banter about to justify their products, most of them, once you deconstruct them, they don't hold up. And, and there's always a but, uh, if, whether it's water, uh, feed efficiency, land use, um, greenhouse gases, uh, you can de deconstruct all of them and flip the arguments. And the one thing that they're, all of these guys are doing with these, uh, plant-based analogs and even the the future cell ag stuff is that they're entirely relying on industrial ag because they're using those crops they're taking beef which can be grown on land raised on land that isn't suitable for crop production with solely green water and replacing it with stuff that requires cropland using industrial methods that requires a lot of blue water so it in, in reality, it makes absolutely no sense from an ecological point of view or, you know, environmental or even a health point of view, because most of the stuff's, you know, it's, it's polyunsaturates and, and uh, other hyper-processed isolates that, you know, you don't know how any of that stuff was processed. Hey, Stephen, let me, because um, I want to come to the, your, your Ecoside Burger with the, with the plant-based analogs. And I want to touch into the cell, you know, the cell culture stuff. Cause I think that's, you know, that's the next thing that's going to excite everybody. And we need to talk to the realities. And I, and you know, I've talked about that before, but talk to me about water. Cause this is one of the arguments that we often hear is, you know, those cows, I mean, to make a cow, to make a, make a, a hamburger, you need to drain like 75 swimming pools for, for the water. You know, obviously I'm being hyperbolic here, but there is, there is a conception that there's a tremendous amount of water going into beef production, and there's some nuance behind that. And, and talk a little bit about the different water sources and what's well, really going on. Well, when I, I wrote a paper back in 2015 called Understanding Water Footprints, and for that paper, I contacted Water Footprint Org to really understand how they derive their, their numbers. Because um, people toss around numbers and makes us sound authoritative and we don't know what those numbers mean or how they were derived. Well, with water footprints, when you look at it, 98% with, with grass, with both grass and grain finished cattle, 98% of the water in a water footprint is the amount of water needed to grow 
the feed or forage over the life cycle of a head of cattle that becomes beef. Okay, so what that means is um, it's, then you have to look at if it's grass-finished cattle, 98% of that 98% is green water, which is also rain. So the real issue is the appropriate land use of where that rain falls. And when you look at most grasses require a lot less water, especially perennial grasses, than most crops do. So, for example, beans on lands that are grasslands require five times the amount of water per acre. So, uh, so somewhat ironically or less intuitively, it, it makes a lot more sense to grow or raise the cattle on land that isn't suitable for crops. Um, and, and when you're also increased and you're managing the cattle properly and you're improving the soil health, you're increasing the water holding capacity of that soil. So you're actually adding water to the environment. Now, the problem with the, the, the water footprints is they're based on GIS maps where they cut everything down into a 25 by 25 mile or, or kilometer uh, quadrant. And then they input data for, that, for each one of those quadrants. So it's a model, and, but the model uses... Um, the models have a lot of limitations. They use synthetic nitrogen use per country. They use an average of soil health, uh, soil type per, you know, a certain size of the grid. So it really can't test the parameters that determine the hydrology. So they don't really, they don't really uh, help determine whether something is, has a really adverse or beneficial water impact. And, and the critical thing is blue water use, not green water. Green water falls regardless of the land use. So again, what's the appropriate land use? And in most places, it's grazing, not crop production, or it's silvopasture with both, you know, nuts and acorns and cattle, because um, those systems require a lot less water than uh, cropping systems. Um, <clears throat> talk to me about the Ecoside burger. Can you, can you go into more detail about why you call the Beyond Meat burger the Ecoside burger? Well, I, I, ca I, I called the Impossible burger the, the Ecoside burger. I had an earlier article on the Beyond Meat burger where I broke down its ingredients. But um, basically, in an industrial farming system where they're using uh, monocrops, a lot of glyphosate, a lot of... Uh, uh, pesticides, they're destroying the soil system. They're so destroying the soil ecosystem. And whenever you convert land, cultivate land, protect land, uh, irrigate land, you kill animals. And you, and by the time you get to harvesting, all the animals are dead already, except for some that wander back on. And then you kill those too. So you're destroying the ecosystem. Whereas opposed to like a regeneratively grazed head of cattle, is restoring an ecosystem. So it's doing the exact opposite. So one, you're destroying it under the pretense that you're not killing any animal directly for a product, but it, it's killing all the animals that used to be in that ecosystem or want to wander back into that ecosystem. So, um, you know, I, you get into these arguments with 
vegans all the time and they say, oh, well, my animal doesn't, my food doesn't kill any animals. And they think the only animals are cows, chicks and chickens and pigs where, you know, there, there are voles, moles, rabbits, snakes, uh, lizards, salamanders, uh, foxes, these all get killed <laughs> in, in, in these cropping systems. There's no life in them. Let's talk a little bit about uh, upcoming, because this is going to be this is going to be a hot topic probably a year or two from now. Is going to be the lab-grown meat, the synthetic meat, the cell culture meat. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, well, it, it's. I, I think there's a lot of hype, you know, because scaling scaling from a petri dish to a bioreactor is is very difficult and a lot of the bioreactor technology if it exists is more theoretical than real um so a lot of these people who have been saying they're going to be coming out with uh, a product are doing small batches that they want to put into restaurants you know so that they can do small trial runs to get people more familiar and acceptable of the product. But so, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to get real information from these companies. One of my friends just uh, connected me via email intro to the, the head of uh, uh, Memphis Meats. And um, we went back and forth a few times, but, you know, they, they're not going to tell you what they're, what they're doing. It's all propriety proprietary and it's all governed by ip cell lines uh bioreactors cell media um growth factors that's all intellectual property and if you control the intellectual property you control the market it's it has really nothing to do with with environmental concerns or or health concerns it all has to do with you know control of markets so they they can minimize their risk and get a greater return um, you know, the, the vegan aspect is, is sort of pretense and, you know, for, ex and two with the cell media, they like to use the analogy. It's like a brewery, but it's not like a brewery because the, the bioreactors, uh, circulate water and they got to clean out the accumulated lactic acid and ammonia. So there's a waste component to it. There's just, a, the more you get into it, the more you realize there's a lot that hasn't been worked out. So, I would be surprised that in five to seven years that it's, you know, at a large scale, but, you know, I could be wrong, but again, you're not going to find out because nobody's going to tell you what they're doing <laughs> because they got to protect the IP. Um, and I, I learned a lot more through some friends in, uh, in England who are, who are have a slightly different mindset. I mean, where it makes really no sense with beef cattle, it may make a little bit sense with chicken or um, or or certain kinds of fish like bluefin tuna or salmon where you can you know create you can you could create a product that replaces a product that has that's rare or in danger so that you can uh, you know I, it's interesting technology, but I, I just don't see it scaling. And it also requires a lot of infrastructure. It requires a lot of energy. It requires a lot of blue water. It, it still requires a lot of industrial ag because the soy, the, the cell media has, um, has amino acids and sugars to feed the growing stem cells. And where does that 
where does that protein come from? Soybeans. Cargill's one of the largest investors in 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 uh in cell ag. And why? Because they need want somebody to sell their soybeans to. Once if if there's less meat, you know, they still have to have all the soybean production, still have an outlet for it. ADM, Bungie, they all in it. Pharmaceutical companies are in it because you need antibiotics, you know, in, in the in the cell media. Um growth factor still an issue you know can you do it without the fetuses of both you know of young calves supposedly some people say some of it works but you can't really tell because nobody's really forthcoming with where they're at but one thing you also see is that you see a lot of the the meat companies are redefining themselves as protein companies because it's a logical extension of you know grabbing market share and having more market control and eventually, I think the ADMs and the JBS people will actually be the biggest impediments to the smaller companies like Beyond Meat because there'll be a lot of other people in the arena with products that will undermine their market share. <coughs> yeah, I think I think it was I can't remember who Nestle or somebody was coming out with a fake meat alternative. One of the one of the big boys is coming out with fake meat product. It's to compete with Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, and they'll probably sweep that up and. That is the thing I've seen Car Cargill invested quite a bit into the alternative protein sources. And I think Tyson's going to follow suit. And uh, uh, it all goes to show that, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, the consumer has to form a relationship with the, 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 the producers directly and vice versa. The producers mm -hmm. need to get out there and market their stuff direct to market instead of uh, quit going to the, you know, the, the standard system that we have in place. And probably maybe there has to be some legislature that has to be passed to make that more attractive to them. Perhaps I, I don't know what's going to, what's going to allow that to happen because if, if, if it's, if things are let to go to their natural conclusion, it will be, you know, most of people eating this sort of industrial food. I like to call it human pet food, whether it's synthetic meat, meat analogs, and that goes for all food. It's all processed food. But I mean, there, there's, you know, at some point we have to sort of say, stop the, stop the roller coaster. I want to get off and, and sort of recover and recover sanity. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have on one hand, you have people who are demanding more transparency and more whole foods. And then ironically, you have these, you know, these uh, plant analog protein analogs that are, ultra process and what's the comeback from these companies they try to play semantic games with what processing means you know equating simple processing with ultra processing you know and they also you know it's it's it, the the thing is to me it's pretty obvious it's stupid but you know I'm, i've never ceased to amaze me by how naive or how disconnected most people are from where their food comes from. I mean, honestly, I was probably like that 15, 20 years ago. I was actually vegetarian for a long time and vegan for a short time, um, but I never, never, re never really understood all of the food dynamics. You just go to a grocery store and buy the junk there um, rather than learning, you know, finding out who the farmers and ranchers are in your area and buying from them directly. So if you really want, like you say, be conscientious and, and know how your food's produced, you, you need to buy directly. Um, and you need to make food more of a priority. I mean, I don't drink, so I save a lot of money there. I don't buy a lot of shoes, so I save a lot of money there. I don't have, 
many medical issues, so I save a lot of money there. Um, so it allows me to, you know, pay on average eight fifty a pound for beef rather than, you know, four dollars a pound for beef or whatever it is when it's cheaply produced. It's a matter of priorities. Good stuff, Zach. Anything else we've got? We've gone for a good session here. I think. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to cover that that we missed? Um. You know, I think I think we covered a lot. I thought I'm sorry, I wouldn't want to interrupt Stephen, but uh, it, yeah, it, it, this has been great. I think uh, you've shared a whole ton of information and uh, a lot of stuff for our listeners to think about. So, if you want to share with them where they can find you or where they can find information about kind of some of the stuff we talked about, uh, feel free to do so, and I can also link that into the show notes. Um, I'm, you know, the funny thing is, I consider myself more of a researcher and reporter. So I'm not really trying to build a brand per se. Um, I'm active on Twitter as LA Chefs. Um, I think that's LA underscore Chefs. Um, I haven't rebranded, though I'm still considering doing something to that effect. I, my website is lachefs.net, uh, where my content is that I post. But in, in general, I'm more interested in you know, there's so much to learn about this. And there are a lot of smarter people than me who know a lot more about the specific facets because they're not reporters or researchers, they're producers, they're actually doing it. And um, there are a lot of soil scientists, a lot of ranchers, uh, a lot of people who I'm more, in, more inclined to spend all my time listening to than, than, you know, talking about myself or what I'm doing. Um, it's just not my thing. This is, I think, my first interview I've ever done. So, <laughs> um, well, you did great, and it sounds like you've been listening to those folks. So <laughs> we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll share the the Twitter handle and stuff. But uh, um, yeah, thank you so much for your time and coming on and and uh, providing all this content for us. Yeah, Stephen. Also, I mean, you mentioned Gabe Brown. You know, we'd love to have him have you on. So if you can, yeah. Talk national offline well, producers. We, we, yeah. had will harris, we had will harris on uh, i think a week or two ago so oh uh, will's so, great he's he's yeah. my buddy yeah um yeah I, I would add uh mike calicrate is is a good person to talk to and i mean there are a few others um some yeah i i can i'll think of a whole list of people for you some i think the fellow that's a big you know you, you mentioned amp for people to adapt to multi-pattern grazing uh and i think there's a i can't remember who the pr pr principal researcher in that field is yeah it's, they're they're two and they're both friends of mine uh richard teague down at texas a&m and uh jason roundtree at michigan state um either would make great guests as would uh Paige stanley who's now at berkeley who who's worked with, who's a disciple of Roundtree. Um, they put out a paper in 2018 uh, that, you know, kind of goes through the finishing phases comparing the, the LCAs of, of uh, grass finish using app management versus, you know, grain finishing. The, the app management was just like Will's, uh, it was carbon negative. So, uh, yeah, if you want to send us their links and hook us up, we'd love to get those people on and get this message out as much as possible. I don't think I don't think people can hear it enough. Well, I mean, it's it's nascent, it's new. I was trying to uh, trying to get people out there. My my candidate, who I was uh, helping, is dropped out at the end of October. I was working with Tim Ryan some, 
um, putting him in touch with people like Gabe and Al, uh, and Al and uh, oh come on, uh, my brain's one of his partners, uh, trying to you know get more people aware of regenerative ag at at a at a more deep level rather than the kind of glib level that many of the other candidates were talking about it. That's actually interesting because I remember I was watching one of the debates back when Tim Ryan was still kind of in the thick of it and he had mentioned uh which and you know if you understand the debate debate format it's like you have to be very picky about what you decide to mention or what soundbite you decide to like throw out to the public in those 10 plus person panels and he had made a point of talking about some regenerative agriculture stuff which I found really interesting yeah he specifically mentioned Gabe Brown and Alan Williams who's Dr. Alan Williams, who was the other person whose name I just couldn't remember. Um, and, and they're, they're working, you know, teaching farmers acre by acre how to switch to regen ag. So there's stuff that's happening out there. And ironically, a lot of the people who are sequestering the most carbon are in the red states in the middle of the country, where all the people at NGOs who are screaming and yelling aren't, aren't uh, sequestering any carbon at all. <laughs> All right. Awesome stuff. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Zach, thank us another good show, man. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, Stephen. Okay. Thank you for having me. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.